0: Hello and welcome to the first Law & Sport News Roundtable. My name is Sean Kotchul. I'm the CEO and founder of Law & Sport. I'm joined today by three of Law in Sport's editorial board members who are world's leading experts in their respective fields. Before I introduce them, the purpose of the roundtable today is really to give you an insight into many of the conversations that we're having at Law in Sport and many of the conversations that the world's leading sports lawyers are having behind the scenes about all the developments in sports so hopefully we're going to touch on some legal issues you'd hope fingers crossed on a on a, on a, a sports store podcast but more importantly i hope you get to understand the reasoning the thinking and the perspectives of these great people and i would say that is that is that buttering you up enough <laughs> is that, <laughs> You can, you can go on. You can go on. <laughs> I could go on. I could. I won't. So, um, first up, we have Daniel Sharkey. She's an associate at Charles Russell Speechley She's worked in house at the BHA, which is the British Horse Racing Authority. She was seconded out to the uh, ICC. Um, she has uh, an extensive amount of experience in sports disputes, governance issues, um and particularly, I would say, a leading expert in integrity. I think that's. Yeah, I know you wouldn't say it, but I would say it, that you are. I, I put you up there in one of the, the world's leading experts, given your experience in, in in-house in role prosecuting cases, but also in private practice. Next up, we have Steve Bainbridge, who is a partner and head of sport and events at Al Tamimi & Company in Dubai. Steve, thanks for joining us. I know it's late there.
1: No, not a problem at all. You gave me a good excuse to finish today.
0: Yeah, What you didn't see before this, he was necking a big jug of coffee. I saw it. <laughs> so thank you for joining <laughs> So uh, like Danielle, uh, Steve has um, an extensive experience in uh, pretty much all things commercial in sport, whether it's endorsement for athlete agreements, whether it's uh, ambush marketing strategies, player contracts, broadcasting, rewriting national regulations around uh, putting on major sporting events, Worked in Formula One, uh, cricket, tennis, I pretty much pick an event, pick a sport. And I think that's Pretty res- reflective of what's going on in Dubai at the moment with all the sport that's taking place there. But Steve will probably be in- involved in it in some capacity. Next up, we have Nandan Kamath. Nandan is the principal lawyer at Law NK. Now, if you try and find Nandan, as I was just looking at your profile again, even though we know each other for some time uh, online earlier today, you've probably got the shortest profile of any sports law I've ever seen, which just really doesn't do justice to, 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 to your work. So, N- Nandan set up the leading sports law firm in India and was a pioneer and is a pioneer in in sports law in India, having uh, set up a conference every year that brings together, and I might add four or three. Um, how many people do you get your annual conference?
2: We get about 200, 300. This year we went yeah. online, so so we got many more hundred. so five or six hundred. I was going to say and a few so... million.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Soon um, enough, yeah. But but has really been at the forefront of pushing good governance, pushing issues around improving uh, the professionalization of the Indian sports market. Obviously, many of his clients are the leading sports technology media uh, companies and national federations, um, but he's also a very accomplished academic. having uh, been a Rhodes Scholar at University of Oxford and forgive me I had no idea what that meant but when I told a few, <laughs> few people in academia they were very impressed so I researched it and it's a very impressive accomplishment <laughs> um but more importantly um I guess and, and relevant for this conversation that uh, Nandan is one of the, the founders and the managing trustee of Go Sports Foundation a not-for-profit that provides scholarship and support for junior Indian athletes and I th- uh, you're uh, Nanda, and I think it's correct to say that you were awarded quite a prestigious award as a foundation last year, or was it earlier this year. Wasn't.
2: Uh, last year at the National Sports Awards, so the award for promotion in sport, which was great for us.
0: Which is which is fantastic, and it interlinks and all the other stuff that we're doing today. So, um, thank you all for joining. And I'm hoping that you're going to be relaxed in this format. We haven't done it before, and you guys are the are the, are the first first, uh, I guess I wouldn't say test dummies. But uh, our first, um, what would you call it, really? I'm just trying to think what we call it. First appearances, first celebrities on our podcast. So to start us off, I thought that one of the things that you guys have in common is your connection to cricket. And given all the disruption we've had in sport, obviously the IPL was back up and running, which is pretty, uh, you know, I think any sport at the moment being back up and running is is no mean feat. And I wondered, respectively, maybe Steve, you can start us off um we're telling us about how it's been going what the preparations that you're involved with uh with getting it up and running and then dan Dan will come to you and tell us how it's going how it's been received in india and then Danielle just get your general perspectives on, on on you know both your past and present experiences in cricket
1: sure thanks sean and also thank you for the invitation to your your first session here the round table whether we're we're guinea pigs or honored guests i'm sure we're all happy to be involved Um, In in terms of the IPL, look, I mean, this has been fantastic from a a UAE perspective. Um, From our own perspective as a law firm, it was actually through a connection uh, Nandan put on to us. We've been involved directly with the title sponsor, um, but more broad brush at a time when most of the events have been shut down. Obviously, India has had some issues in terms of dealing with COVID-19 and other things that, that Nandan can tell us more about. But here, I think um, there's a couple of factors. You know, Being quite candid, we've had IPL matches here before in 2014 when there were some issues going on and it was a, a convenience measure. Um, as you're aware, Pakistan typically has been playing their, their international matches from here for a number of years. Um, we've always faced attendance issues. So the COVID situation is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, The IPL, we've essentially got three facilities now. So matches are being played in Sharjah, which is the the most storied home of cricket in the UAE, but also in Dubai and Abu Dhabi as well. Um, That's caused a bit of trouble in terms of, Dealing with things, uh, athlete movement between the Emirates. We have some different uh, coronavirus enforcement issues between Emirates. Obviously, keeping the athletes in something of a bubble, although they're staying at, at public hotels. Um, but look, for us, um, and, and I think as we've seen the development of the IPL over the last 10 years, the core product is the broadcast product. And I think we're, we're fortunate in the sense that it it is an event that can be managed quite closely. Um It seems to be going well. It's not been without its problems in terms of uh, individuals having infections and protocols being enforced and that sort of thing. But by and large, and I mean, I won't give a plug to the particular channel I watch it on, but each night I've been watching the matches and they've gone off very well so far that the sort of the blend and mix of the, the the speed the energy the high scoring the the fantastic play and the and the uh, the, the marquee players involved has given us the product we 've been looking for so i I think that broadcast product has maintained its integrity so far
0: and and so Do you think, so Nandan, first of all, how's that been received in India? Obviously, the the most important market. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's actually,
2: Steve's absolutely right. The the reception on broadcast has been incredible. I think the numbers are very positive. Uh, It is a broadcast product to start with. But I think the interesting aspects as well have been uh, the commercial structure of the IPL is uh, actually so dependent on matches being held in stadia. So it's actually one of the best-attended sports events as well. So it's uh, most often quite difficult to get a ticket to a game. Um, and that uh, transformation from that sort of product where you have full stadia to uh, empty stadia, I think has been in many ways challenges to a few of the cricketers. Who uh, There was some very interesting talk early on that it might be some of the younger cricketers who do better. And the other ones who sort of get worked up with the crowd, you know, the ones who get excited with the reactions and use that energy, in in some ways, the more experienced players might struggle a bit. And it's actually turned out that way. The first few few games of the IPL, you see the younger guys uh, playing, um, I mean, in some ways without the expectation and... Uh, they may be more used to playing in empty stadia when they play domestic cricket, they play first-class cricket. So quite interesting to see the reaction, not just the commercial reaction, but also on-field reaction to empty stadia. Uh, Sitting at home in India, we're uh, watching the broadcast and there's sort of uh, the audience uh, audio played in there. So they got it (laughs) wrong a few few times at the start. So a lot lot of excitement about not that much, but I think they've got better at... uh, Sort of modulating the audience reaction, but the big transformation to me, uh, Sean. Sorry, sorry. Go
0: ahead. Oh well, no! I want to know. I know what the big transformation is. <laughs> it, it,
2: it's just how how intrinsic digital has become to the product. So both ways, in some sense. And if you look in the stadium, and I think uh, Steve probably participated in that, is a lot of the uh, the, the sponsor interaction is in stadium uh, digital. So they put up big screens inside the stadium. Sponsors are able to put their uh, their nominees into the stadium without actually uh, being physically present. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, stuff going off uh, offline. So uh, sponsors are paying the same amount as they would uh, in a sort of touch and feel event. Uh, and a lot of what's happening is offline. Uh, in in the offline world, the sponsor activation is happening online. So Instagrams going crazy, Twitter. Facebook. So, so the, the, the scene of action has really changed for a fair bit. And that also reflects in all of the sponsors they have. So every one of their on-ground sponsors is a digital sponsor. You look at the advertising, it's all fantasy sports. It's online education uh, on the broadcast as well. So it, we've moved in many ways to the next generation of business. So uh, traditionally in, in the IPL, you would have a lot of advertising from FMCG. So products... Uh, like soaps and detergents and every the next new thing but so much of this has been digital both in terms of sport digital but also non-sport digital
0: So, so do you, this is one of the things that's interesting we just published a podcast with ricky valente who some of you know who's on on our editorial board as well who's um, set up the professional who is setting up the professional collegiate league in the, the us and you know the, the covid-19 from their perspective as a new league looking to launch next year is that you know do we you know do we reflect on our digital strategy right is this an opportunity to reflect on that are we do we think i know that many obviously across football and many other sports rugby uh you know counter cricket etc rely on gate receipts um to a certain degree um do you think this is going to be a real shifting moment where you're going to see this great divide between those which are which we already see, but a greater divide between those which are great TV products or broadcast products and those which are, you know, what I say more traditional or less commercialized? Do you you wanted want me to respond? <laughs> yeah, yeah, any one of you. <laughs> No, Joe, sure, it nice. sure, that is a sign of a terrible question. That is no, a sign of a terrible question. If if people don't respond, that's like a pro- way to know that you need to rephrase your question. <laughs> no, no,
2: it's a it's a profound question, so I I'll, I'll pass on to one of the others. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What do you reckon, though? Danielle? How do you feel about that? You
1: haven't had a chance to speak yeah, yet. I don't. I'm conscious we don't want to be monopolizing uh, time. You are too kind. Steve,
3: you're too kind. Um, no, I think it's <laughs> a good question, Sean. Um, I think, I think quite quickly, the more kind of traditional sports that don't always rely as much on the media and um, kind of online digital platforms, um, since lockdown have had to just change their game pretty quickly. So I think what you're seeing, I don't think they'll necessarily be, um, they'll get left behind. I think, will the gap get bigger? Probably not. I think they'll just catch up. Um, but, I mean, it's it it's really interesting anyway. I mean, cricket, I think, is one of the sports that is just consumed across so many digital platforms worldwide. Um, and so, you know, the fact that the IPL has been able to just shift to a different country... Yeah, all You know, it's players from different international countries in one place, in COVID-secure bubbles, that uh, played across um different emirates. It, you know, the organisation that's gone into it is actually phenomenal from a, a, a kind of a sporting perspective. Um And everyone involved in that ought to be applauded for, for the effort that's gone into it, because it is. It's just, it's massive. And, you know, I think it's only really those of us who are ingrained in, in the sports sector can really, truly appreciate the effort that will have gone into that. Um, I think the 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 kind of the less sports that weren't as reliant upon digital, as I say, I think they are going to have to change. It's just, it's a sign of the times, but that's not just indicative of sport. That's every industry. So,
0: so what do you guys then think? So so one, obviously, you know, uh, UFC would have been absolutely fantastic with this. Um, you know, being you know, being you know, arguably the front runners when it came to short creating bubbles and getting it done. It's slightly different than the team sports, though. We've got you know, less personnel, so it's easier to do. But one of the things, and I'm sure you were going to see many, many more of these reports. PwC republished a report last week, and the upward trend was uh, fantasy sport, sports betting. Right. So at the same time, we're seeing this, and it's a great feat. I did wonder that, that you know, and having spoke to a number of people in various integrity roles, that they were saying that they were, whether it is safeguarding, whether it was, um, you know, anti-corruption and match fixing, that they were busier than ever uh, during this period because of the issues that, that having these bubbles. And I wondered, and maybe Danielle, again, this is your area of expertise. Um, when you're seeing, you know, uh, people, you know, moving continents to play competitions and uh you know lots of different movements and constraints implied on people what sort of issues are you know for those that aren't familiar with it um come with this increased in say focus on particularly sports betting and broadcasting around stuff like the IPL
3: I mean about, I so it is, it's, a re- it's a really interesting one I think the cricket betting market is slightly different from kind of the traditional UK European sports betting models anyway just because of um the fact that betting is illegal in a, a lot of the um you know different asian countries and so the betting tends to take place in unlicensed markets as opposed to licensed markets which makes it more difficult to detect i think in terms of you know the effect of a shift because of covid and the ipl changing um changing where it's it's hosted and played Initially, I think the commentary was, well, this is great for the integrity of the game because it's going to make it so much more difficult for corruptors to penetrate it. Which traditionally, if you look at how, you know, the corruptors tend to go about trying to get access to players, you know, they'll try and stay in their hotels. They'll invite them to parties and offer them all sorts of gifts and and money, etc. So people thought, yeah, this is going to be great. None of that's going to be able to happen. And so the corruption is going to be brilliant. It'll almost be stamped out. Um, and then I think it's you know this daily news roundtable has come at a perfect time because this morning, lo and behold, in the press, um, an IPL player has reported that they have you know received a corrupt approach. Um, so players done exactly the right thing, uh, reported it as they should. Um, there's not a lot of detail, which is unsurprising because the the IPL um, anti corruption managers are investigating it. And so it just goes to show it really does not matter what happens in the world and what's going on there is very little that's going to stop corruptors and those who, you know, have illicit interest from trying to penetrate sport. Um, and I think, you know, it's fascinating, but there's just nothing that will stop them.
0: Because mm. I wondered if there was um, a greater risk for the reason that the families, you know, because often families are targeted or, you know, people in close connection. And given that people are in lockdown and more vulnerable positions, that I wondered if that environment made it easier to manipulate people. Right, because in some ways they're more isolated, and and you know that you can it's easier to apply pressure because you know exactly where people are, right? They're not going to go anywhere. It's not, yeah, not that they can move or escape. And you, I, I wondered if that was uh, you know made it easier rather than uh, more difficult.
3: Yeah, potentially. And I think look, only time will tell. I think the other thing to note is as well if you're looking at you know lower league sports um, and just generally sporting personnel who aren't paid the big bucks. Covid's had an impact on everybody, you know, every single industry. And I think when you traditionally look at where match fixing and corruption takes place in sport, it tends to be at the lower levels where people are more vulnerable and easy to kind of penetrate and get on side to accept bribes, etc. So I think only time will tell, you know, sport. Worldwide, everybody's saying the money's going; it's decreasing, you know, rapidly, and that will have an impact on, you know, what players are being paid, and what teams are able to to pay their players. And so, in time, I think we will start to see the, you know, that have an impact on the integrity and potentially open up gaps that may not have necessarily been there, with players becoming more vulnerable um, and more open to potentially, um, you know. exceeding to the corrupt approaches and it is possible like you say they've left their families at home you know it's not like players can travel back and forth like they used to with the freedom that they used to have you're right um, for for those stars that are in the the public eye and a really high profile everyone will know that their families are back at home and so it could make them an easy target Um, absolutely but I think time will tell I, I personally haven't seen anything yet to indicate that that has happened But I wouldn't be surprised
1: if it's going on. And I I think, too, that raises an interesting point, Danielle, that ties into your your first question or your second question, Sean, in terms of the asymmetric hit that COVID has had. Obviously, with the IPL, we're talking about a, a broadcast product. Also, the additional, Nandan touched on it, all of the additional sponsorship and advertising money that can be easily accessed through mobile, and and really, they've not missed a beat in terms of those sponsorship deals. But lower down, I think we're we're seeing and we're hearing a lot of it. I'm seeing on a day-to-day practice, what's happened with us is that uh, our volume of sort of mid-level queries has dropped drastically largely because sort of the events companies that support the F and B and the ticketing people, all of the people involved in the ecosystem of the match day revenues, they found it very difficult. Um, we're seeing the top levels. We're, we're hearing obviously in sort of in the UK and the, the the lower divisions that people are struggling where those match day revenues are so key to survival. Um, but you know, as Nandan suggested and, 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 Danielle endorsed. I think that some of them will adapt. So e- even at lower level product, there there are ways for the for online activities to be monetized and new revenue streams. Um, what, what sort of challenges you know, and does that there, bring legally? as with anything. There, what
0: sort of challenges does that bring legally? Because I, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, and see your area of expertise, but with these. When you're entering a title sponsorship in the unknown, right, uh, that comes with risks. And obviously you want yeah. to offset those risks or so when you've got players in bubbles or not being in bubbles. <laughs> right? Uh,
1: yeah. yeah. And, and look, I think a lot of that is awareness in, in terms of, of the legal position. I mean, for, for us, we probably see things in various different iterations, but not a lot is new. What will be new is that sometimes you will have sports or or those administering or governing the sports dealing with markets they're not used to or trying to access revenue streams they're not used to. So for them, it's sometimes an awareness issue that, look, we need to have advice, um, you know, both strategically in an advisory capacity, but also locally when we roll something out. uh, Are we compliant? And, And maybe some of those that lower down where money is always an issue um, you know, is it the first thought to go outside and, and find outside counsel who can give you comprehensive advice? You know, especially if you look at some of the more traditional sports that, uh, you know, have always, um, struggled for finances early on. They maybe are at association status rather than, uh, um, full federation if it's a, a governing body and that they're seeking money. You know, in the contrast that I think, essentially underscores that is in something like esports, where they uh, you know a phenomenon where they've never wanted for revenues there has been revenue since the start they're not looking to federations they're not necessarily looking outside they they have found their revenue streams to start with so i think you know if you go from something like that to the sort of county level rugby team that's looking to finance themselves there's a big difference. Isn't, would you say, um, and, and, you know, I think we're starting to see winners and losers. And would
0: you say that, that in there, though, I always question whether that's the I understand that perspective, but I always question and, you know, I, <laughs> respectfully to all of you, <laughs> but to the legal community, I often think it's a huge problem that we don't communicate as a whole. Uh, myself included in that way, to those small organizations to say this is a value that good legal advice can can give you. Because at this moment in time where so much is at stake, not getting good legal advice can be way more costly in the mid to, to long term than, than you know, just trying to cut off, you know, just trying to keep your budgets down and, uh, you know, just trying to cut corners, right? Because you can get found out really quickly, worst case scenario. You can end up in, in look
1: undoubtedly and i think you know nandan will i think have something to say regarding his foundation but i think one thing that we've found in that space is that you you know and and almost every sports lawyer should be thinking this and i know many if not most are already doing it but you need your pro bono hours and it's very easy to go out there and find sporting organizations clubs and all the way down to individual athletes who could benefit from some advice Um, and there are stages at their careers where, you know, it'll be useful and maybe they will become um, more sophisticated clients who will have larger needs later. But, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit about the foundation, and I'm sure you're touching on some of that and and hitting that sector of the market. Yeah,
2: absolutely. absolutely. So I think just a couple of things to add to your earlier points, uh, Sean, about, uh, you know, the, the broadcast ready sport and, and many of the others uh, about a year or two ago, we started getting a lot of inquiries from uh, from federations, even international federations talking about doing their own OTT channels. So uh, having your broadcasting yourself in many ways. And I, I'm interested to see how that plays out actually over the next year or two, uh, in many ways, uh, it could be the way forward. Uh, but it also means no underwritten broadcast rights. So you take on the whole commercial burden yourself. Uh, That brings up a number of new issues. So for example, in India, they're looking at whether to regulate OTT. So imagine taking on the regulatory burden uh, an international federation taking on sort of global regulatory burden of making sure your channel is compliant in every country, and in many ways that has been something that's been outsourced to the local broadcaster, right? So I, I think there's some interesting stuff that's going to happen in uh, federation OTT. So you'll have ICC TV, you'll have uh, MLB TV, and, and taking that forward.
0: What's interesting about that is that Andrew Ryan, who's now the uh, uh, I've forgotten where his new title is, the head of let's call him the head of uh, um, FIBA <coughs> Media. Um, he was uh, wrote an article for us a few years ago saying, breaking down rather articulately, and I would argue one of the leading articles on this topic about the challenges of uh, sports organizations having their OTT platforms and broke down mechanics of it, right? Because if you look at the data and if you look at, say, FIFA. Uh, Ian Smith at FIFA, when he did the, the legal update, uh, the FIFA's legal conference, uh, the football law conference, he said, linear TV far outstrips OTT, far out for FIFA, right? If you look at, um, pretty much pick a sport, right? And I won't name, because I'm not sure if it's public knowledge or not, but one of the top Champions League clubs said that they 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 blow through, basically they burn through, I think 10, 20 million euros a year. And they're a big club on their OTT offering. And what uh, what um, Andrew articulated was that um, people underestimate the bundling, the value mm. of bundling and how many sports rights are packaged up together and sold with something else and that yes. effect. And also I think what's really interesting, it's a great point you raised about the OTT regulation because Ofcom are now taking responsibility domestically in the UK for um, uh, digital platforms right which they didn't in the past because who was regulating it and one of the things that's interesting particularly if you look at esports and these other sectors is that they have be making money sometimes and doing things in a way that they may not be able to do on traditional broadcast for, because of all those regulatory requirements they have to pass through and so it's gonna be interesting in a bullish market where everyone's saying ott 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 as you said what well, is going to be the, the 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 friction that's caused by tr- proper regulation right it's, and it sounds Sounds from what you're saying, it'd be quite a burden, let alone the technology, technological cost. Because we had eleven, I don't know if you remember eleven, the problem that eleven media had, yes, where they, um, where they, you know, when they launched in the UK, and then they had problems with, with the broadcast and this, That's quite, it's quite something to keep a steady broadcast going, isn't it? As we all know from the Zoom calls and podcast recordings <laughs> we have, right? Trying to keep a steady internet connection going, it's a challenge. Really interesting. Um, what else is going on in terms of? Uh,
3: It's not just that, though, Sean, I think to touch on, um, you know, the the impacts of COVID just generally, whilst there will be a massive shift on the regulatory side as well, let's not forget, you know, the commercial impact that COVID is going to have on the traditional contracts. So, for example, you know, broadcasters and sponsors are going to be looking so much more at what they're paying for their rights, but what they're actually getting back for that. And I think. I'm starting to see already, and I don't know whether Steve and Nandan are experiencing the same in their respective jurisdictions, that I think when you, especially taking broadcast contracts, TV deals in particular and companies are going to be wanted assurances, they're going to want minimum thresholds, KPIs, so the importance of getting proper legal advice on drafting these types of agreements is going to be more important than ever before, because They're going to want the best players with live audiences, as I say, minimum thresholds that if they're not met, they'll get, you know, refund rights. And I think what we are going to start to see and what we are seeing already is very kind of lengthy schedules, very complicated legal agreements being put in place, even more so than before. And so I think that's that's certainly one thing that's on the horizon. And we're already starting to see in the UK market. I I don't know about you guys. It's
0: a great point.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, we're, we're seeing it here. I think it's, uh, it's one of those events that, that has, it's a one of a kind, but it's one of those things that has made lawyers and uh, various administrators who are involved in the contract process really take a look. And, you know, everyone's familiar with, uh, the complete rewriting of force majeure and everything that, you know. Don't mention that word to me. No, <laughs> it, it, up. It, wait, wait, yeah, it. look, it. It. No. <laughs> I was going to try and avoid it. But, uh, but look, it's had a positive uh, corona effect, if I can use that word in its true sense, uh, that, that it's also made people look at other clauses. And I think we're going through a phase where, for us, it's been quite positive. In the GCC, we've seen that, um probably the first 6 months after the the announcement of a pandemic and the, you know the the lockdowns a lot of the relationships that we deal with for events that are being held sponsorships as well and whether it's rights holders broadcast they they tend to be sort of 3 to 5 years sometimes even longer or they may have had precursor agreements prior to that where there, there's been a good relationship, the parties have said, okay, look, we'll get through this. So rather than immediately going to litigation, they've said, let's see what we can do in terms of minimizing losses in this year. Hopefully it's only one year, um, but preserving what there is further on. But those amendments have tend to be not just let's deal with a year and then we'll pick it up when we're at the other side. You know, as Danielle has suggested, they're looking at the contract and saying, look, well, let's, let's beef this up. Let, let's actually expand this clause and deal with it through a schedule that will have a lot more detail. So I think it's having, um, you know, almost an Americanizing effect of con- on so, contracts here in the if, Middle East. So, so for those, we're,
0: Sorry, Steve, to interrupt you, but I just for those people who, who maybe aren't lawyers who are listening, yeah. <laughs> maybe we should just say that, you know, explain what would happen in the negotiation of a contract. Just very briefly, just so people understand, can we talk about schedules? And so some people will think, what schedule? Why do we need to have a calendar? Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I mean, look, it just in the, the, the general life cycle, if you think that you've got a couple of parties that want to do something commercially they think it's a good idea, they hammer out a one page saying what which party's going to do which and you get, you get paid for it and, and you perform. But really, when you get into details, you may say that, well, I'm going to do A and B, but the specific details of how I do that and what's done let's flesh out by adding an exhibit or a schedule it could be one page or you know on broadcast agreements it could be 50 pages you you don't just specify that you're going to have a high definition international feed but it will have to meet certain technical requirements and it will be you know used in certain areas in certain manners so they can become quite complex and it's i find too with it one of the great things about law and sport is that we deal across so many jurisdictions Largely have the world covered now, there are very stark regional differences. So, you know, I used to practice in Japan for a number of years, and I'd find that lawyers were very much an afterthought. You would have the two principles of the entities make an agreement, the lawyers would come in and paper it later. Um, in the North American context, it's quite different that usually the principles will meet but they're not going to make any final decision until they've gone back to their own shop and talked it through with the lawyers here in the Middle East. And these are harsh generalizations that are, are all flawed. But here in the Middle East, it's kind of a blend depending on the company. So you'll have a handshake agreement between two principals in some companies in others that they take or draw from what they've seen elsewhere. And that, you know, they may be lawyer driven deals. Um, But look, I think in that sense, that's the silver lining I'm seeing is that contracts are being thought about and perceived as living documents, whereas there was a, a greater likelihood prior to COVID that they were something that was signed at the start of a relationship and put in the bottom drawer. But I think that this experience has made people realize that they're actually a living document we may need to consult. from now, time Is to that time. how
0: you're seeing it in, in India? Because I know in in the UK, eh, there's a real mixture and it often is indicative of how the governance of the sports runs, because some have, have taken a more, let's say, collegiate approach, as you're talking about, Steve, and others have just literally unilaterally just terminated and then deal with the aftermath gone to the gun. Yeah, it, not that different yeah. here,
2: uh, Sean. And I think uh, Steve's put it pretty well. depends on, on who's at the top and how much experience they have with sort of disputes. But I think the interesting thing for sports lawyers, in, in many ways, we are reverse integrating into other industries now because uh, in many ways, sport is the first major industry that's addressed coming back to play in full-fledged form. And many of the protocols, and I'm sure Steve's seeing that as well, the, the protocols done for sport, the liability waivers, the uh, the back-to-sport uh, sort of contracts, uh, a lot of non-sport clients are coming back and said, you must have addressed this in sport and uh, could you look at this for us? So the non-sport event stuff is coming back and is coming back digitally and lots of interesting, I think, opportunities for sports lawyers to have been the ones to have done something first and then to sort of work backwards with other other clients.
0: I'm clipping that, and I'm going
1: to put it. Up. Yeah, look, I'll I'll just jump in there and absolutely endorse that, and I mean, we we've had people. We're a full service firm. We've had people coming to us saying, "Look, what do we what can we do here? Have we got any guidance on this?" So we've uh, you know, I mean, check law and sport the last few months. There's been a lot of great uh, listing of the guidelines that have come out from different leagues. the the protocols in there. So the detail there, a lot of that sort of slimmed down, repackaged, discussed with the clients, you know, how can this fit your industry? So I think that's right. You know, in some senses, we've been the hardest hit because we think of major events with mass attendance and ticketing. Those things had to stop right away. But as Nandan says, you know we're coming back. We've got the examples, you know, the IPL. We've got Fight Island in Abu Dhabi. There's there are moves towards that, and and businesses is, is taking that's, from that that's, lead. That's
0: good to hear. And as I said, I think I will take cut that and put it all over social media. <laughs> 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 we've got, I should mention on that point: the project that we we, we undertook with uh, Michele Calucci and the Sports Law and Policy Centre, um, doing looking at the, the the how football has addressed. Uh, or how it's been impacted by COVID. We've got an updated version of that report. It's some 400 pages now from 60 leagues and countries around the world. The Michele has been working quite tirelessly on putting it together. And so we're in the final stages of putting that together. But that was one of the things starting the review of that was looking at how each country is addressing with the protocols, that how mm. people are, you know, certain places are doing two tests a week, certain places are doing one test a week. Some places you question whether they are doing any testing, <laughs> right? But it's really interesting cross compare again, the different approaches and there's some very, really creative and constructive thinking in terms of how people are tacking, tackling, you know, making sure that the sport's run. Um, Danielle, what, what, um there's two things I want to come back to, actually, which was, um, sorry, actually, I might go to, back to Nandan quickly and then I'm going to come to you, Danielle. But the, but, he, right. but Nandan, um, talking about the, uh, we didn't actually talk about the, the, the Go Sports um, Foundation in terms of the work you've been doing. I know that in India you've been behind a big drive around um, good governance and looking to maybe more government support in terms of you know meeting certain criteria.
2: Yeah, I, I think, uh, Sean, uh, Go Sports has been about sort of athlete support in many ways. So it's really the pathway to, to getting there. And I think we've seen the last few months how hard the athlete community has been hit. Uh, having the IPL is great. It's it's symbolic. It's significant. Uh, but what we've actually seen is the movement of the IPL uh, keeps the commercial structure of cricket going, but in the sort of second order way. It... Uh, money for the BCCI. The BCCI will hold its tournaments, distribute its revenues and players will get it sort of down the line, uh, whether the domestic season happens or not. But sort of the direct people around sport have been so badly impacted in terms of the ones who would be around match day. And I think uh, Steve put that really well. Uh, The vendors, the security staff, the the people who would sort of maybe even... uh, Sort of sell jerseys. Uh, there's a whole economy that has, in some sense, tanked. And uh, what uh, one of the... was, uh, it was called Play for India, which was really fun for people in sport. And we're not talking cricket. We're talking about. Uh, we're talking about sports like uh, like hockey, like uh, badminton, swimming. So many that had not been played at all over the many months. And what we did is uh, sup- uh, set up a support fund where any member of the public could contribute and give back to people who were really struggling. And that struggle really hasn't ended in many support.
0: I think are you guys experiencing a problem with Nandan's connection or you
3: yeah I've just lost him sadly
0: okay Nandan I'm not sure if you've got any other browser windows open but if you were to close them that might help and never to be it's going to happen and I, right? I, I can
3: pick up on a point that yeah, he made definitely. though to keep the yeah. keep the conversation going and um, I think actually something that I'm really intrigued to see um whether or not it will make a difference you know we talk about the impact of you know the financial um sorry the financial impact of covid on sport and actually if you look at the betting industry and what might happen there because if you look at you know sports just generally have have been hit massively you know we've seen. All of the sports governing bodies present to DCMS about how much the pandemic has cost them in terms of lost events and revenue, etc., and that has a trickle down effect, to, as Steve has said, to all of the vendors and um, people surrounded with, um, you know, sports events and, and working in sports stadia. But if you look at the betting industry, they've been going kind of focused on the digital market um, for quite some time now, um, and so the digital platform for them works perfectly. The fact that there are more people sat at home consuming sport in a digital context works for them perfectly. The fact that now every person potentially, if you've got a subscription, has the ability to access a 3pm Premier League game on a Saturday works for them perfectly. So they are generating arguably, and I don't know, I'm not i am not yeah. in the betting industry, but one would would think that actually it's generating for them a greater and increased revenue. And therefore, I wonder whether in the UK market, at the very least, there are going to be more calls from sports bodies to the betting industry to get them to reinvest some of that revenue back into sport at the very least grassroots level, which is almost, you know, for a lot of sports at the moment, non-existent because they just can't can't resource um, the sport to keep up with the, the government guidelines. So I wonder whether there'll be some lobbying of government um, some new regulation, which will kind of look more closely about, you know, the the profits of better companies and where they're reinvested. Um, but that, I think, is one thing that I'm really intrigued to see. And I'm sure anyone who works for a betting company listening to this won't thank me for saying that. <laughs> but um, I think I, I do think it, it's it's something I mean, obviously, I've got a background in horse racing and and I know that, you know, a a large proportion of the integrity function of the horse racing industry is funded by a betting levy. Um, And I think a lot of other sports might look at the models of, you know, where the the income is being generated at the moment. And it is, you know, again, as I say, through the digital betting market, it will be different in different jurisdictions, of course, but certainly from a UK perspective, that's something I'm really intrigued to see whether there'll be any change.
0: And it raises a really interesting question, which is again what is the purpose of sport right what is the true purpose of sport so what we've been seeing and you know i'm sure some of you may have uh, listened to the the um the webinar we held a couple of weeks ago now on uh navid Afkari um around his execution in Iran, and it really brings into question about what is a social responsibility of sport, right, and what is the true social impact? And so, the one extreme of that, you say, there's there's a model where, and I was thinking with the review of the gambling act, there's a great opportunity there, isn't there, at the moment, uh, for for lobbying oh, yeah. on that front. But the um, you got sport, so you got horse racing, which we always put out there partly because of your have you, as you educated me and, and many of your former colleagues and uh, have done about you know horse racing being a product for the betting industry. So that's the one extreme and so what we could see what you're talking about is at one extreme you could have okay sports um being literally just a product for betting esports being a product just for betting not for a social impact not for the getting people out to exercise to socialize in in an in-person way anyway at least well that's the one extreme another extreme is you have a, a more happier coexistence where the funds are being distributed to further down the chain I'm not so optimistic. I'm not sure where it's right, but again, jurisdiction specific. I'm not sure, uh, I'm that optimistic that the, that the funds are going to flow down that way. Because as you're saying, is everyone different?
3: No, and I, I, listen, I think whether we like it or not, um, the link between sport and betting is intrinsic. Okay. So whether sport is designed to be a betting product, for example, like horse racing, greyhound racing, it's a traditional betting sport or not the markets being offered by the betting exchanges mean that sport is a betting product, yeah. whether that's the intention or not. And and you can't get away from that. So m- my view is that, you know, I'd like to see whether, as I say, those sports that are struggling and you know, the money's going, whether they would look to lobby government to potentially request that, you know, there is some form of reinvestment program, as I say, at the very least at grassroots level, but even, you know, at elite level, mm-hmm athletes are suffering you know look at athletics mm. um you know we, we all know yeah. the struggles so- of, of individual athletes and so it's, it's just i'm not saying it will happen um I'm not saying it's going to be an impact, but I'm saying it would be interesting to kind of watch and see absolutely. if it does happen in five years. You heard it here first. Yeah, <laughs> so the uh, the debut news roundtable, we uh, we sussed it before
0: anyone else. Think, I just think, Nando, maybe you can talk about this though. But you know, one yeah, one of the things that I've definitely seen, right, and you know, we've worked with all of these companies, and so it's not to, I'm not speaking badly of them. They're great, you know, in what they do. But if you look at Genius Sport, private equity backed, Sport Radar, private equity backed. Um, uh, perform stats, perform yeah. private equity backed. Right, they they went into those companies obviously pre COVID, but on the basis that data and betting companies, all of them like you know offer their own OTT offering. And then now, um, you know, one of them I can't remember which one it was, but it started offering odds on a particular sports market. And you have to say that relationship is an interesting one, in, mm. in, in terms of you know, particularly when it comes to the point of control. And, you know, I can't, I think it was lacrosse in the US that, that that partnered with one of these companies. And lacrosse is not a very popular sport in, in the U.S. And you just think they started offering, immediately started offering betting market on lacrosse. And you thought with players that aren't particularly well paid, that seemed like to massively elevate the the risk profile of that sport for obviously a cash injection because they needed the money. And so there's constantly these tensions there in the overall space. Um, how What is the best approach? We've got? no idea.
2: Yeah, it's, it's actually very interesting what Steve brought up earlier, it's sort of esport and being the publisher and feeling the freedom, right? In many ways, that all the trends we've talked about, uh, Federation trying to have its own OTT, uh, a betting company or fantasy operator, even setting up tournaments for its own sort of purposes in many ways. In many uh, cases, these they sponsor tournaments which are purpose-built, right? Or even sports. So everyone is trying to get closer to the action as a publisher. Uh, In many ways, is that a way to sort of reduce risk or is it in many ways getting too close to the action where you'd rather diversify the risk and have uh, the bigger, uh, well-backed financially uh, broadcasters bear some of that risk uh, up front? And I think the COVID times are going to see a split. So some people trying to address risk themselves, uh, trying to bring the commercial package in its entirety closer to home. And some are going to try and push it out just based on the level of optimism and pessimism different people feel, I think.
0: And how would you? Here's a question for you that could lose you all your clients. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Um, so I, uh, I'll try and word it in a way that you can answer. How well historically do you think sports bodies, in general, no specific ones, uh, or investors in sport have been good at assessing risk profiles, and I'll give you my answer at the end. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, you will, who wants to, Like, Jimmy, because I would argue that, or if I argue my point, and then you can say if you agree or disagree. Maybe it's easier, so you don't have to put yourself on the line. Right.
2: To be honest, Sean, I think anyone who invests in sport is an optimist, right? So they, yeah. uh, it's it's the desire to not see risk, even if it's in front of you, and. In many cases, uh, that is why sort of independent uh, observers come on sports bodies. You get sort of members of the public. I think if you saw the way Wimbledon had tackled this paying insurance for years and years and years, I'm sure that came through good corporate governance practices, right? People forcing people to take insurance on things that uh, sort of an aggressive board that was just looking for for money might not have. Uh, And in many ways, I think uh, optimism is part of sport and being able to look beyond risk. There, there is barely a client who says, okay, you've told me the risks now, it's my decision, right? So I, your job's done. I'm going to jump. You, thanks for telling me what the risks are. But, but I think that's going to change because you're seeing attitudinally, uh, most of my clients listen to you a little bit more carefully uh, because they, in some sense, you were a hurdle to get over just so that you could go and do the deal. But I think now you're getting into the boardroom in a slightly different way where sort of your experience and your ability to to really assess risk as a lawyer is being respected in the commercial decisions in a new way. Uh, I don't know how long that will last, but, but it certainly exists right now. So.
1: Look, I think that's a really important point, and I think um... – Nandan's really put his finger on something there that historically, although he, you know, I, I know he's a little bit tongue-in-cheek with that, investment in sports has been a punt. Forgive the metaphor. But essentially, we, we've known that it's – and if you look at owners, uh, when you think of uh, prominent sports and various clubs, the, the definition of a successful owner on the mm. pitch has been one that loses money. So, and, you know, you can make the broader argument theoretically and and to history that, you know, aside from sports and the fine arts, uh, almost everything else has some component in something we do to survive. But sports and the fine arts are almost by definition disposable income vehicles. So you, you do it because of a passion or some internal drive that is, it's not construction. It's not finance to live and to eat or whatever. But I think we, we are at a stage where we're going from, you know, the goodwilled owner who was loved by the fans, who's poured money into teams to make sure that, that they do well on the field. And we're now, you know, we are seeing private equity come in and that is very not. Uh, their approach. It's the antithesis of how they evaluate things and they're doing it because they're becoming better at assessing risk and they're looking down the line. I mean, it used to be a, the, the, a time that you would only make money if and well you, when you come to sell a club or a major investment that you've made and the broader market shifted. So you benefit from broadcast contracts from leagues or something like that, not because of your own good management, but those the the appearance. In spades, in the last few years, of private equity money, I think is the harbinger of different times, and that uh, that risk assessment analysis is being done on a sophisticated level, and returns will be expected. Now, I think that also ties in, perhaps somewhat unfortunately, certainly in this jurisdiction where any sort of gaming or gambling is illegal, but it, it ties in with where some of that money is going. And I, you know, Danielle's point, I think, is very compelling that if there are perhaps elements or sectors within the industry that only exist because of the connection to those industries, maybe, you know, there there is a compelling argument to think that some of that money should be funded back in, mm-hmm. whether that's through a licensing structure or uh, taxation, I, I don't know. That's a very big argument that will be different in each jurisdiction. but yeah I think it's times have changed in terms of financial backing and and definitely I also think
3: though that from the private equity market and this is something that I've spoken on quite a bit since um COVID kicked off I think that um private equity investors are going to be looking to sports models in terms of their investment because if you look at the traditional kind of men's game. Um, it's saturated you know you you buy rights they're on an exclusive basis they're carved up very restricted what you can and can't do with them if you look at the women's game it offers a far more innovative approach which could potentially offer greater return on value on investment you know so for example your packages of rights tend to be big bigger what you can do with them tends to be more you know you get a lot more freedom and I think that investors will be looking to the women's game where it's not as saturated and actually you know before covid and before lockdown it was on an upward trajectory in terms of spectatorship and you know as a, a result of you know, women's world cup and winning netball and hockey gold medals at olympics and commonwealth games um, and so i think that that might be um, when you're looking at investment into either grassroots or other forms of sport hopefully the women's game will see a benefit from that um, because it has traditionally struggled, obviously, to to keep up with the men's game.
0: I, th- I think that's a really interesting point, Daniel, and I'm sure that, you know, given all of the issues... Sorry, Nandan, you want to add something?
2: Yeah, yeah. no, I just think that the, uh, lots of interesting stuff is going to come from this, in particular in a country like India where uh, there, were, there were tons of leagues. Everyone wanted to be the IPL of whatever, volleyball, table tennis, yeah. uh, name the sport, and they, they thought <laughs> that the the IPL model was going to bring them uh, money and uh, what I think COVID's done is it's knocked a bunch of the unsustainable ones out of business uh, and they were in actually dangerous territory one because they were not sustainable but two their unsustainability commercially was actually leading to a lot of the, the integrity issues. Uh, when you talked about risk and optimism I mean if you looked at any of the Uh, Their projections, they expected to turn positive in three years and they're so far away from positive. So, I mean, they're essentially selling franchises which just did not have a chance. And we've seen some of the state cricket leagues in particular become sort of the places where lots of fixing started happening. And it was actually not external influence. It was actually owner influence. So we we saw situations where people in control of the clubs were fixing the games where their own players were playing. Um, and I think the uh, impact of COVID is there isn't so much of that vanity money around of holding your own league and owning teams. But that sort of activity is going to move elsewhere for a while. But my big concern is sort of the funding of the next two or three years. It might not come from government. I think government's going to spend huge amounts on vaccines and health and other things like that. So where is the money going to come from? And, and I think that's a big challenge for sport going forward, in particular, uh, a sport like cricket, which is going to attract the money. But I, 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 if, I think private equity money would be, would be good money in this situation, but that's not the sort of money we see in Indian cricket whether it's advertiser money or owner money but the
0: private equity money is interesting right because like with lawyers right not all lawyers are equal not all private equity funds are equal right and if you look at say you know obviously you got venture capitalists private equity pretty much you know, I believe it to be very similar in terms of you know their approach but described differently but they were a large part in the problem with the tech bubble right mm-hmm. that we had right if you look at that because everyone it's kind of a group mentality let's all get in Right. And so at the moment, I've been speaking to a bunch of people involved in private equity. I, they obviously know more than I know about why they're investing by I, I question, and particularly in football, some of their assessments of the risk in terms of their control. Funny enough, Danielle, on the reason that you were saying about, you know, you know, the structures, the rights deals. But they seem to believe that they can influence a league, influence people with all yeah. different interests. The one thing about sports, which is interesting, unless you own in the league, Right, and apparently we had them talk at the um we had uh who is it who who mentioned this? I'm trying to think correct, credit the correct person. But we had a panel on uh, on our football law conference about um the state of financing of sport and in and football, and there was um you know someone had mentioned the fact that that when I think it was Liberty bought Formula One, one of the reasons that they bought it was because they thought that's one you know competition that we can control the whole thing. Yeah, there's not many properties you can control the whole thing, but now obviously everyone's selling up because <laughs> they need the money. So maybe there's you know, if you can yeah. control the whole ecosystem, maybe it makes a lot more sense.
3: But but it goes back to the point that you know now is, is just as you know, it's more important than ever to make sure that if you are being approached um in respect of these types of commercial deals, that you are getting the right legal advice because maintaining that control and getting the balance right is incredibly difficult. You know, if you've got an investor coming along wanting to invest millions and millions into your sport, it's an attractive offer, especially at the moment where, you know, as Nandan says, governments are running out of money. Funding isn't going to come from government and the government purse is is, is drying up. And so I think that is one very big issue in the balance of control. Mm -hmm. You know, any sport that is receiving private investment needs to make sure that their governance structures are unaffected. Mm their regulations aren't affected by it and that they c- they can maintain a degree of control and integrity over the game, yeah, sure, there'll be other commercial elements that they can negotiate on and potentially set things away, provided that, you know, the interest and spirit of the game are, are maintained. And I think that's, that's key and crucial, the whole private equity in sport actually working and being a success. Because
0: yeah, you wonder, don't you? Because um, was it Fortnite, the founders of Fortnite? One of these games, they did a deal with a private equity house, and they and when it when it sold when it when it got listed, sorry, I think they ended up with like I don't know a million or or, or a couple of hundred thousand each, basically because they'd been watered down so much by the time it got listed, and so they took legal action against them. But you know, in the tech space and in the entrepreneur space, is always something that that people said, you know, taking private equity money at the right time is a good move. Taking it at the wrong time is a very, very bad move, right? Because they mm. they want to recover their losses if there are any losses, which means they're going to be, you, know, you will be, you, know, you may be out of a job if you're a founder, right? There will be, there'll be no problem. They'll change the management board. Yeah. Look, stay safe. <laughs> Never go beyond the friends and family round. <laughs> but here's the thing, though, but I think it's a really good point because that's, it shows you where the sport is going in terms of its sophistication. Um, uh, and this development, I really like the, the the thought that you were saying about the women's game. I said this like if I was involved in women's football, I would totally ignore men's football completely as a sport, particularly in the UK uh, market, but elsewhere as well. And just set up a shorter season, just set up a much shorter mm-hmm. season, make it really attractive, make it controlled, make the narrative easier to understand. Because for someone like me, and maybe many others like me, you, you know, when you get kids, your time poor. It's really you get tired, like because you miss various parts of the season you're trying to pay attention in football you just don't have the capacity to follow it like you used to before having a family I thought. but that's
3: the beauty yeah. of the women's game in that it, it can it has mm. the ability to learn from some of the mistakes yeah. of the men's game and i think it has the ability to be very very mm. powerful and I, I think a lot of people are appreciating or realizing that at especially not at the moment because there are obviously other priorities but in general you know as women's sport did start to gain momentum a lot of people didn't fully appreciate that and i think that will change it definitely will change
0: also if you look at the years
3: on an international level as well not just national
1: and i think that's where a lot of the smart money yeah i think that's where a lot of the smart money is because really because they they provide something of a tabula rasa in terms of. what you can do commercially in the women's game and potentially with some rule changes, mm. there are more levers for private equity. So, you know, the, the, the one private equity piece is that they all believe they're smarter than the people who, who run the games to begin with. And, you know, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, but the, the more chess pieces on the board, the, the stronger players are the ones that triumph. So I, I think there is yes, a lot to more know, to be of the done and to that, be gained. That, and, that, again, and I, I really gained.
0: don't think the UFC get anywhere near enough credit for this. Obviously, you can tell I'm a bit of an MMA fan, but um, you know, they have headline women's fighters. I know boxing have been doing a, a, a similar thing now. have been adopting a, a similar approach. And lo and behold, what happens? They're great athletes, great fighters. People tune in. They buy the pay-per-view. They buy the subscription because they just like sport. And if they see you know good quality sport, In in its various forms, they'll tune in and I think they've they've been a sort of pioneer and I think that's a sort of an eye to the future where it really doesn't really matter if it's men's or females really. It's just about, you know, once, and it's important, once everyone has the equal opportunity to access the facilities and all the other things. And there's been some big shifts in terms of uh, equality of pay at national level anyway in football. Representation of of, of female players in football, which I think is you know long overdue. Um, guys, I could keep talking to you guys for forever. Um, thank you so much for being part of this news roundtable. That hopefully, for people listening, that gives you an insight into some of the discussions that we're having uh, with these great people. Um, you know, there's so much going on. I know how busy you all are. I really appreciate the time you've taken out just to have a chat, basically, and catch up um, around various topics. We had no agenda, we literally just arranged the call and just started chatting. So, uh, thank you all hopefully you know when we do episode news round 100 we can reconvene or maybe before that anyway but definitely 100 (laughs) will reconvene um but thank you all very much i hope you have a lovely rest of your day evening uh, respectively and yeah thanks so much for giving up your time and thanks everyone for tuning in